David Beeson and this is chapter 26 of A History of England where we're going to turn our attention to that moment of triumph and joy for many Englishmen, the restoration of the monarchy. Fans of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings don't need me to tell them that there can be nothing more wonderful than the return of the king and we're about to see it happening in England. The last time we talked about someone trying to mount the English throne, we found out he'd ended up hiding up an oak tree and then fleeing abroad to avoid arrest and probably worse. So, you could be forgiven for wondering how, when that very same fugitive did in fact become king, it was such a matter of celebration. Let's find out. The end of the Protectorate had been a tad chaotic. Richard Cromwell had succeeded his father as Lord Protector, but he was a far less commanding personality. So he never had the support of the army that Oliver had enjoyed, and Parliament too, feeling the weakness of the new ruler, began to be less compliant. This was 1659, an exciting year, when things started to move at breakneck speed. First, the army moved against Richard Cromwell. Wisely from the point of view of his self-preservation, he beat a retreat. Within nine months of coming to office, he was scurrying into exile abroad. Rather ironically, the army which had seen to the dispersal of the rump parliament six years earlier now reinstated it. But the ironies didn't end there. Just to add to the general air of collapse and disorder, the rump again fell out with the army, which, once more, moved by force against parliament, locking the doors and posting armed men outside, to stop MPs getting in. Then the army split. Generals who hadn't been part of the latest coup against the rump called for it to be allowed to reconvene and get on with its work. One of the generals who heard that call, and the one that responded to it most effectively, was George Monk. You may have forgotten about him. Think back to the moment when Cromwell had moved militarily into Scotland to face down an uprising in favour of Charles I's son, who the Scots had proclaimed king as Charles II. Badly beaten by Cromwell, Charles's army moved into England. Cromwell followed him, but he had to leave forces behind in Scotland to continue the pacification, as we euphemistically call it, of that kingdom. It was Monk who took on that duty, and he'd stayed there ever since. Now, with chaos breaking out in England again, he moved against those army leaders who'd turned against the rump, and just moving against them turned out to be pretty well all he had to do. The forces on the other side rapidly deserted and joined him. He headed for London with no clear idea of what he might do once he was there, or what if any resistance he might meet, but intending just to feel the way the wind was blowing before he made up his mind. He soon decided it wasn't blowing the rump's way any more than the previous army leaderships, so he came up with another suggestion. Instead of recalling just the rump, he felt it was time to recall the entire parliament from which the rump had been formed when members had been excluded in Colonel Pride's purge. This may sound weird. If so, that's because it is weird. Let's just recap. The long parliament had been called by Charles I and had sat for far too long, as its name rather suggested. 
The army had inflicted Pride's purge on it, excluding a bunch of members it saw as forming an awkward squad. What remained was the Rump Parliament. The army, under Cromwell's direction, later did away with the Rump too. As Richard Cromwell was falling from power, the army recalled the Rump. Then the army decided to lock out the Rump it had just reinstated. And then, finally, when George Monk acted, it restored to Parliament the men Pride's purge had removed, and in effect recalled the Long Parliament. In other words, things had come full circle, back to the situation nearly 20 years earlier when the Long Parliament had first convened. Confusing, I'd say, and a pretty good indication of the messy times people were living in as the Protectorate fell apart. Still, this was the Long Parliament with a difference. It wasn't expected to do any actual lawmaking or governing. It had been clearly and forcefully told, at the point of a gun, that there was only one thing it was required to do, organise new elections so it could vote itself out of existence. All this confusion, all this recourse to armed force, must have raised fears that guns would again determine the outcome. That must have looked horribly menacing to people who had clear memories of what life had been like when civil war had ravaged the land for year after year. After all, that had been less than a decade earlier. Once more, armies might seize livestock and houses, burn crops, destroy buildings. Young men on each side might be killing young men on the other. Even civilians might again be at risk of rape or murder. Almost any outcome was to be preferred to return to those miserable times. One option that was beginning to look increasingly attractive was the restoration of the king. Royalism was gaining ground, if only as a way to satisfy a longing for stability and to preserve the peace, the increasingly fragile peace. Charles I had been executed only ten years earlier. A collection of his thoughts, including his speech from the scaffold, had appeared within a week of his execution. There were 35 editions in England and 25 in Ireland just in the first year following his death. So, even though the Republic had just been set up, there was clearly still considerable support for the executed king, even if it was discreet and out of sight while the Republican regime was strong. From the scaffold, Charles had assured the people that he truly desired their freedom, but, in his words, their liberty and freedom consist in having of government those laws by which their life and their good may be most their own. It is not having share in government. Charles, the man Crubble and his side had presented as a tyrant, was neatly positioning himself as the true preserver of freedom. That's a freedom that doesn't apparently require being consulted about how you're governed. Instead, the freedom he offered was freedom from fear, a freedom that strong government and stable laws provide. In the chaos of the end of the Republic, that was looking increasingly desirable. It happens in modern times too. In the face of a crisis, it's fascinating to see how many people are willing to give up freedoms they think they value, in return for a sense of safety under a government some see as autocratic, but they view as strong. So, the Long Parliament's last act was to call elections before voting itself out of existence. The elections returned a new batch of MPs who promptly did what was becoming increasingly demanded of them. They offered Charles II the throne. 
Monk hadn't marched for a restoration, but that's what he achieved. Back Charles came, entering London to great celebration on his 30th birthday. There were immediate executions of the people most complicit with bringing down Charles I, but at least numbers were kept low. The bodies of Cromwell, Ireton and Bradshaw, who'd presided over Charles I's trial, were disinterred and hanged in chains. A nasty fate, on the other hand, I suspect they suffered less than those who were hanged, drawn and quartered alive. What a king England had given itself again! The merry monarch, with mistresses galore, even the humbly born, though by no means humble, orange seller Nell Gwynne, and a string of illegitimate kids, though no legitimate ones. His friend the Earl of Rochester wrote of him, We have a pretty witty king whose word no man relies on, who never said a foolish thing, nor ever did a wise one. Quick as a flash, Charles II remarked, This is very true, for my words are my own, and my actions are my ministers. One might quibble that a king who appointed his ministers might take some responsibility for their actions, but when you're dealing with a repartee of such quality, I suppose some might feel it wrong to be that picky. And what a period Charles II presided over. Dryden and Waller wrote their poetry, even if not quite as well as they had for Cromwell. Milton produced his masterworks. Pepys kept his diary. Restoration playwrights wrote their restoration plays. Wren built his buildings and Purcell wrote his music. The Royal Society was founded as a powerhouse of scientific progress. In the church, Episcopalians were in charge again and the bishops, driven out by Presbyterians, were back. And who, after all, can live a truly fulfilled life without bishops to tell them what to believe? Theatres were open and Christmas celebrated again. It was a golden age. Well, up to a point, maybe. Elections were held for new parliaments separately for the three kingdoms, ending the imperial vision of a united Britain. The three realms were linked again only by the person of the king. In England, the Cavalier Parliament awarded Charles revenue from customs and tariffs for life. This was traditionally granted the monarch, but you may remember that it was denied to Charles I, who seized it anyway. Now his son had it by legitimate right. The income was good, if not quite as high as he'd like, to meet all the needs he felt went with his royal status, but at least it was steady. That meant he might not have to call Parliament too often to go begging for more money. Charles was rather more inclined to religious tolerance than many. That was partly because he was close to Catholicism, partly because he saw little value in persecuting other Christians, whether Catholics or indeed the Puritans who had dominated the Republic. But a Parliament run by the men of the Restoration was having none of that talk. Tolerance, when they could flex their muscles again at last? You must be kidding. It would take nearly two centuries to emancipate Catholics, and in the meantime there were scores to settle with the Puritans too. No one hates a Christian more than another Christian who disagrees with him. You wanted to impose a single faith on the whole country, did you? was the Episcopalian message. Now you're going to find out how that feels. This was the last time the attempt would be made to impose one religion on the whole of Britain, but it was a goal pursued with energy. All forms of Christianity not conforming to Episcopalianism were banned. 
not just the Presbyterians, but the Baptists, the Congregationalists, even the harmless Quakers. Nonconformist beliefs meant exclusion from the priesthood or public office. There were heavy fines for continued nonconformist worship. In Scotland, things were still worse. The minority Episcopalian Church was imposed on a majority Presbyterian nation, something the king wasn't keen on, but the men he needed to shore up his power certainly were. The period came to be known as the Killing Time in Scotland, and delightful instruments, such as thumbscrews, were displayed in open court so people could see what awaited them if it was decided they needed special treatment. Meanwhile, coffee houses were closed if partisans of the wrong kind of politics met there. So were the wrong kinds of newspapers. The number of printers was reduced significantly, and the survivors placed under strict censorship. Spies kept an eye on who was meeting where and what they were saying. Oh, well, a golden age may be less golden for some than for others. Or, to put it differently, the monarchy wasn't just back, it was back with a vengeance. We'll discover a bit more about the delights of the Merry Monarch's reign in our next episode. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 